Just a quick note before we begin. There's a great event coming up on May 16th in Freehold, New Jersey. As of now, the run is still on. The event coordinator is monitoring the coronavirus closely, and I will share any update if things change within the next two months. But if you're in the area or plan on visiting, check out the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K. This event was organized by Marines, and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, the Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. It's a great event, and I'll be there, so come say hi if you're in the area. If you're not a runner, there will be an after-party with $1 drafts. If that's not a good enough reason to show up, I'm not sure what is. Visit MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5k.org for more details. I've included a link in the episode description, and we'll share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's get into some Barbary Pirates. Welcome to episode 37 of History of the Marine Corps, To the Shores of Tripoli, Part 2. Our last episode followed an American squadron as it sailed to the Mediterranean. We touched on a cunning plan by Hamet, the rightful heir to the throne of Tripoli, and the United States. We also covered another incident where Bainbridge is humiliated for a second time. This week, we get into some intense battles. Preble called for a group of volunteers to head back to Tripoli and destroy the Philadelphia. This heroic battle was heard around the globe and helped regain support from American citizens. This episode also digs into the first American attack on Tripoli itself. Both battles have some fantastic tales. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Last week, we saw another embarrassing blow to Bainbridge. After running the Philadelphia aground, the crew tried to free the ship for four hours, but they were unsuccessful. Marines First Lieutenant Newton Keene and Second Lieutenant William S. Osborne were in charge of the Marines. Bainbridge called the council to discuss options, which included First Lieutenant Osborne. Every officer agreed to surrender, even though the thought of striking colors to barbarians would bring humiliation to the United States. The Corsairs took advantage of this situation, surrounded the Philadelphia, and the Americans gave up their ship. This was a tough decision, but sacrificing the lives of everyone on board could not be justified, so the crew unanimously agreed to give up the ship. As the United States flag lowered, the Corsairs stopped firing, However, they didn't approach the Philadelphia. They thought it was a trap and proceeded cautiously. Bainbridge had to send one of his officers to the Corsairs and guarantee he would hand over the ship peacefully. At 1800, the Tripolitans boarded the vessel. They flowed over the side of the Philadelphia, shouting and celebrating their victory. The crew was lined up and pirates confiscated anything valuable they had in their possession. Money, watches, clothing, shoes, everything was up for grabs. But not every crew member handed over their belongings so quickly. Many fought back, including Bainbridge. When one of the Corsairs tried to remove a locket around his neck, which included a picture of his wife, Bainbridge angrily beat him off. All 307 officers and enlisted were taken prisoner. 
Of the Marines, there were First Lieutenant William S. Osborne, Sergeants Otis Hunt and David Irving, Corporals George Fry and Peter Williams, Pfeiffer John Simmons, Drummer Abraham Henshaw, and 38 privates. About eight months after the event, Osborne wrote to Colonel Burroughs, stating, quote, The men are all well. At least I have heard so, for I have not seen them but once since our confinement. Murid Reese boarded the Philadelphia and immediately sent his men below deck to patch the holes. Reitz was a Scotsman who converted to Islam and changed his name. He was married to Yusuf's daughter, which is how he received his appointment to High Admiral. Even though Bainbridge tried to sink the vessel, the ship was so high aground that she took on very little water. The Corsairs were able to patch her up and Reese ordered everyone off the Philadelphia. Most of the Americans were stripped down to their underwear. The Tripolitans forced them to row back to shore. The boats were overcrowded, and many Americans were pushed overboard and forced to swim the rest of the way, or drown. When the Americans reached the shore, Reese marched them through the streets towards the Bashaw's palace. As they reached the palace, guards lined the streets with glittering sabers, muskets, pistols, and tomahawks. The Americans marched through a winding passage that led to a well-decorated room with marble floors, classy carpets, and a wall with beautiful enamel work. The prisoners formed a semicircle around the Bashaw. He wore a gold-embroidered silk robe, a large white turban decorated with ribbons, and a diamond-studded belt that held two gold pistols and a saber. Even though this event is well-recognized, little is known about Yusuf himself. American prisoners described him to be in his mid-30s, overweight but handsome. Apparently, he also had a splendid black beard. He was very protective of his treasure, and two strong boxes, holding gold and diamonds, never left his side. He was superstitious and quick to anger, but he did have a soft spot for his children. Yusuf didn't spend too much time with the enlisted men. He quickly called the officers up, fed them, and sent them to the American consulate. Navy and Marine officers would spend the night at the consulate and sleep on the floor. The Danish consul, Nicholas Neeson, would help the American prisoners. He promised to provide basic comforts to the men and supplied mattresses, blankets, and baskets of fruit the following day. The officers were in better shape than the enlisted. They were free to move about the abandoned house, and they were given food. The rest of the crew were not so lucky. They were wet from their swim to shore and only received dry clothing from other slaves. They didn't receive food on their first night and they were forced to sleep outside. Reese dedicated the following day to interrogations. On top of his questions, Reese mocked Bainbridge. He said, quote, Who with the frigate of 44 guns and 300 men would strike his colors to solitary gunboats. He must surely be a coward or a traitor, unquote. After the interrogations, guards forced the man into a small prison. Many men had to sit or stand all night and used an old beat-up sailcloth for a blanket. For the rest of their stay, many men worked as slaves. Forty to fifty men would transport rocks ranging from two to four tons and some as long as 16 feet. They pulled wagons that were poorly constructed, and they were guarded by soldiers with muskets and whips. Elijah Shaw, one of the ship's carpenters, 
stated that they worked barehanded and barefooted. Guards frequently whipped the prisoners, and their bodies starved due to the poor quality of their food. The officers were more fortunate, and they weren't forced into hard labor. They mostly hung out in their quarters, where they had a clear view of the Philadelphia. Bainbridge and other officers watched the Corsairs travel back and forth from the ship, with trunks of clothing and other supplies that Bainbridge didn't order into the sea. Bainbridge was given writing supplies and wrote letters to his wife and the Secretary of the Navy. In his letters to his wife, he poured his heart out about his failure and said that it would have been more merciful if the enemy just shot him in the head rather than having to live through another embarrassment. His letter to the Secretary of the Navy wasn't as dramatic, and he wrote, It is with the deepest regret that I inform you of the loss of the United States frigate Philadelphia. But things would get a little worse for Bainbridge. He thought the ship was beyond salvage. However, the Tripolitans sensed a storm coming, and they sent 50 men to the Philadelphia. The storm brought huge swells to Calusa Reef and lifted the Philadelphia off the obstruction. The ship's carpenters quickly plugged the holes and the Philadelphia was operational again. Tripolitan divers also rescued most of the guns, anchors, and other supplies tossed overboard. Yusuf and his navy now had a mighty ship in their possession, but this wasn't enough for the Bashaw. He also wanted money and expected $1,000 for each prisoner, $100,000 for a peace treaty, and $43,000 in presents once the agreement was signed. This amount of money was unreasonable. Yusuf understood this, and he encouraged Bainbridge to write Preble, pleading for the ransom payment. But Bainbridge had another idea. The Corsairs monitored all communication, so Bainbridge used some ingenious methods to write a letter to Preble. In his letter, he discussed the event and his imprisonment. His letters covertly contained an encrypted message. When the Bashaw started to suspect his letters were a little fishy, Bainbridge wrote in between the lines, using diluted lemon juice. When held over a flame, the heat would reveal the hidden message. This trick worked, and the letter was permitted to leave Tripoli for America. When Preble first received word of the event, he was furious. He was angry at the demand from the Bashaw, and he was mad with Bainbridge's decision to surrender the Philadelphia. In response to the ransom payment, Preble said, I had rather spend the rest of my life in the Mediterranean than consent to either. The Philadelphia was by far one of the most powerful ships now in the Barbary fleet. She could do substantial damage to the commerce vessels, and Bainbridge proposed that Preble send in a task force to burn the Philadelphia. As more and more of Bainbridge's letters came in, Preble had some time to cool off. He agreed with Bainbridge's plan, and he was already planning a similar attack. The idea was to send six to eight gunboats into the harbor at night and destroy the Philadelphia. It was an extremely dangerous plan, and many risks remained unknown. Preble realized the danger of this mission, and he only accepted volunteers to carry out the task. Stephen Decatur would take the lead as the commander. Decatur was a distinguished naval officer, and he proven his worth during the Quasi-War. We discussed his actions during a battle between the Lamour de la Patrie and the USS United States during episode 22, the United States sailed to the West Indies. The ship Decatur would use 
was a 70-ton Tripolitan catch, previously known as the Mastic. It was captured by the Enterprise and renamed the Intrepid. On January 31, 1804, three months after the Tripolitans captured the Philadelphia, Preble issued his orders to Decatur. They were straight and to the point. His order stated, You are hereby ordered to take command of the prize catch Intrepid. It is my order that you may proceed to Tripoli, enter the harbor in the night, board the Philadelphia, burn her, and make good your retreat. The destruction of the Philadelphia is an object of great importance, and I rely with confidence on your courage to effect it. Lieutenant Charles Stewart will support you with the boats of the siren and will cover your retreat with the vessel. On boarding the frigate, it is possible you may meet with resistance. It will be well, in order to prevent alarm, to carry all by the sword. May God prosper you in this enterprise. Preble set up base in Sicily, and there, Decatur and his men ran drills for a week to train for the mission. The Constitution was similar to the Philadelphia, and Decatur's men practiced boarding and setting charges at different points below deck. The crew sailed for their target on February 7th, and after facing rough seas, reached their destination eight days later. The journey wasn't an easy one. The Intrepid was designed for a crew of 25 men, but she was carrying 75 sailors and marines for this mission. Salvador Catalano would also join the crew, and he was hired for his knowledge of every reef in the Tripoli Harbor. Catalano would pretend to be the captain of the Intrepid for this mission. Due to the number of men, everyone had to share a bed, which included Decatur, and his cabin housed four other officers. Decatur wasn't a do-what-I-say-not-as-I-do type of guy. This leadership earned him a lot of respect from his men. Marine Private William Ray was known for picking on naval officers. He was often very critical. However, he stated, quote, Decatur is proverbial among sailors for the good treatment of his men. Most would sacrifice their lives for him. If living conditions and rough seas weren't bad enough, it turned out the meat on board the ship was spoiled as well. The beef was packed in barrels previously used for salted fish. Whoever stored the meat didn't clean the barrels thoroughly, which caused the meat to spoil. They rationed biscuits and water for the rest of the voyage. As they approached the Tripoli Harbor on the 16th, the Siren and the Intrepid parted ways to avoid being seen together. Decatur hoisted the British flag to fool the Tripolitans, and he began to sail into port. But a strong wind was carrying the ship too fast, and Decatur was concerned that they would arrive at the harbor during daylight. He was able to slow the vessel by tossing large buckets overboard, which caused drag. The Intrepid decelerated enough to allow Catalano to study every reef. She arrived just as the sun was setting, and at around 2000, Decatur ordered the buckets hauled in. As the men were towing the lines, they noticed a couple of boats rowing in their direction. They were from the Siren, and were positioning themselves for the rescue mission. Thirty men on board the boats joined Decatur's raiding party. Decatur ordered everyone below, and only allowed six men to walk the deck at a time. Around 2200, the Intrepid approached the Philadelphia. Catalano called the Tripolitan harbor pilot 
and he claimed that they just ran a blockade. He told the harbor pilots that they lost their anchors during their trip, and they requested a line from the Philadelphia to fasten to during the night. Someone tossed them a rope, and as the Intrepid crept closer to the Philadelphia, one of the Tripolitans became suspicious. Something tipped them off, and he gave the alarm that these were Americans. But his warning was a little too late. As soon as the two ships touched, Decatur gave his command. Americans were swarming the Philadelphia. The ship's surgeon described the event as truly electric and stated, quote, Not a man had been seen or heard to breathe the moment before. At the next, the boarders hung on the ship's side like a cluster of bees, and in another instant, every man was on board the frigate. The Tripolitans were completely unaware of the attack. Many were diving over the side in retreat. The week of practice started to show, and every man worked together flawlessly. While the raiding party was slashing at Corsairs on the Philadelphia, the men on the Intrepid were ready with boxes of tar, flint, shavings, and powder. They passed the supplies to the men on the Philadelphia's deck. Everyone on board was at their stations and quickly positioned the explosives. Each man carried a candle, and every squad leader carried lanterns. Decatur circled the ship, confirming everyone was in place. Once Decatur was satisfied, he gave the signal and every man lit their candle and tossed them into the debris. Fires on board the Philadelphia started simultaneously. The Philadelphia was dry as a bone, and all her ports were open, which helped circulate the oxygen. She caught fire almost instantly, and some men in the lower levels of the ship were nearly trapped by the fires ignited above them. Decatur waited for every one of his men to get off the Philadelphia. He would be the last man on deck, and as he boarded the Intrepid, he did it with style by jumping into the riggings. The entire event lasted 25 minutes, less than 10 of which were actual fighting. The fire spread so quickly that burning tar poured onto the Intrepid, and flames started to burn her sails. The oarmen were able to free the ship, and the Intrepid sailed away from the burning Philadelphia. But by now, the fortress was awakened, and Decatur had to deal with artillery fires from shore. The fire on the Philadelphia spread to the cannons, which Tripolitans preloaded to help defend the harbor. They were now pointed towards the shore, and as they ignited, cannonballs fired directly at the fortress. This action was the Philadelphia's final service to the United States. The fire eventually reached the powder magazine and exploded. It was reported that the ship seemed to lift out of the water before disintegrating into countless pieces. Tens of thousands heard the sound from miles around, and good old Private Ray stated that the blast made their prison tremble at its base. The Intrepid sailed towards the Sirens' boats. Not one American died, and only one was injured. Decatur reported the status to Stewart, and the Siren and Intrepid watched the remains of the Philadelphia burn from a distance. They left for Syracuse around 0600, watching the last of the flames sink into the water. In Syracuse, Preble waited anxiously. As the two ships arrived, he listened to Decatur's and Stewart's debriefing. He was ecstatic and wrote the Secretary of the Navy with the great news. Decatur was recommended for a promotion, 
and President Jefferson immediately approved the recommendation, and Decatur became the youngest captain in the Navy at 25 years old. Americans back home celebrated the news. National pride was high, and the word of this victory circled the globe. British Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson called this attack the most bold and daring act of the age. This news was critical for Jefferson. This was the silver lining needed and caused Americans to support the war. This victory turned a very embarrassing event into one of the most heroic acts of the time. Back in Tripoli, the Pasha didn't have the same response. The attack literally took place outside of his window, and he could see the aftermath. This battle was a great victory for the United States, but unfortunately, the prisoners would go through hell. Yusuf ordered the American officers locked in their quarters, and he placed 20 guards outside. The guards turned violent against the enlisted. Ray reported, Like so many fiends from the infernal regions, rushed in among us and began to beat everyone they could see, spitting in our faces and hissing like the serpents of hell. Every boy we met in the streets would spit on us and pelt us with stones. Our task doubled, our bread withheld, and every driver exercised cruelties tenfold more rigid and intolerable than before. Yusuf was paranoid, and he anticipated another attack. He was right, but he would have to wait a few months for the Americans to return. Before the burning of the Philadelphia, Commodore Preble traveled to Malta and met with Hamet, the rightful leader of Tripoli. He had assembled a large army, but he needed a navy. He asked the United States to provide the naval force and also cover some of the costs for his march to Dern. In return, Hamet promised to release all Christian prisoners, which included the 307 captured Americans. He also agreed to a permanent peace deal with the United States. This deal would allow the U.S. to make Tripoli its permanent base and also allow them to garrison the main fort. Preble didn't have the authority to make this deal, but this was a pretty damn good agreement, and he was positive that the President and Congress would agree. He sent a letter to the Secretary of the Navy, outlining Hamet's promises. In the meantime, Preble planned another attack. But this time it would focus on Tripoli's fortress. He requested gunboats and mortar boats from the Kingdom of Naples to help with the attack. Preble now had a fearsome fleet of 15 ships. On July 29th, he issued his battle orders. He divided the fleet into two columns and each captain was given specific instructions as to his position in the line of battle. The gunboats would take the lead and engage the enemy ships. The larger vessels were placed further back and tasked with bombarding Tripoli. The squadron closed in on their target towards the end of July. The fleet stopped three miles from the harbor, and Preble waited patiently for their opportunity. High Admiral Reese saw the American fleet and he sent out 19 gunboats to protect the harbor. The line of defense was two miles long, but as the gunboats headed towards open waters, Preble saw his opportunity. This move left the Tripolitan gunboats exposed. He ordered everyone to prepare for battle. Through his telescope, Preble saw citizens of Tripoli watching the gunboats from the roofs of local buildings and their houses. It was like they were preparing for a show, and Preble wasn't about to let them down.
He signaled his fleet to come within hailing distance, and he delivered his orders. The brigs and schooners moved in first with the gunboats closely behind them. After sailing halfway to the stone barrier, the gunboats would take the lead and head for shore. The bombing ships would head west and wait for Preble's signal to begin the attack. By 1430, everyone was in position. The flagship raised three flags, first a blue flag, then a yellow and blue, and lastly a red and blue. This sequence was the signal to attack. The brigs, schooners, and the frigate Constitution sailed towards the harbor. The bomb catches started their bombardment. The first volley of rounds were hollow and filled with gunpowder. When they exploded in the air, the shrapnel would spread out in all directions. This caused the spectators to flee their roofs for a safer location. It also turned the shore battery's attention towards the gunboats. The brigs and schooners aimed in and concentrated their fire at the shore batteries. Reese moved forward towards the American gunboats. Even though the larger warships provided cover fire, most of the battle was between the gunboats, which included hand-to-hand combat. Barbary pirates excelled at boarding enemy vessels, and they loved to fight close combat. However, they never faced United States Marines before, and the Marines were well prepared to handle the pirates. The accurate fire and the tenacity of the Marines and sailors caught the Corsairs off guard, and it repelled many of their attacks. The 2nd U.S. Division was the first to attack, and the Marines and sailors took a page out of the Tripolitan's handbook and swarmed the Corsairs. It's reported that Marines and sailors screamed and yelled as they boarded the Tripolitan boats with swords, pikes, and tomahawks. As the Marines and sailors stormed the ship, Tripolitans fired their weapons, but due to the speed and accuracy of the Americans, many Tripolitans didn't bother to reload. They were overwhelmed, and the ones who weren't slashed by swords either jumped overboard or surrendered. Americans were outnumbered two to one, but Decatur didn't care about the odds. Sailors and Marines jumped from ship to ship, swarming the decks and attacking the Tripolitans. As they continued to attack the gunboats, Decatur's 16 men managed to kill 16, wound 15, and took five as prisoner. Despite the gunboats being outnumbered 6-19, to the United States was able to push the Tripolitans back into the inner harbor. Meanwhile, Decatur's brother, James, was also fighting this battle, and he was busy attacking one of the larger Tripolitan ships. He managed to kill most of the crew, and the enemy was forced to surrender. As James boarded the ship, the captain pulled a pistol and shot him in the head. This cowardly move sent James tumbling between the two ships, and his crew rushed to pull him from the water. Stephen Decatur received the news that his brother was in critical condition. He was no longer a man concerned about the mission. He wanted revenge, and he asked for volunteers. Eleven men quickly stepped up to help with Decatur's retaliation. When Decatur boarded, he was met by the large captain of the ship, Decatur charged at him with his pike, but the captain grabbed it, and he managed to pull it away. Decatur unsheathed his cutlass, and he swung it at the pike, but the blade broke off at the handle as soon as the cutlass struck the pike. Without a weapon, the captain swung his sword at Decatur, 
striking him in the arm. Decatur responded by grabbing the captain's throat and grappling him to the deck. The American ended up on top, but another pirate rushed to help and raised his sword at Decatur's head. A wounded American on deck jumped between Decatur and the enemy's sword. The blade ended up hitting him in the head, scalping him in the process. He ended up living, but there are mixed reports on who this selfless man was. Most historians credit either Daniel Frazier or Reuben James, both sailors, who made the sacrifice. Decatur actually gave credit to Frazier, so most books you read will probably credit him. The Navy credited Reuben James, and they even named a destroyer after him in 1920. However, a prominent naval historian credits this heroic act to a Marine, Thomas James, stating that the injuries reported by the ship's surgeon closely matched the description of the battle. Reuben James didn't even appear in the list of wounded. Regardless of who jumped in front of that blade, it was a true sentiment of the respect Decatur's man had for him. Another American fired at the attacking Tripolitan, killing him instantly. Decatur and the captain were still wrestling, and the Tripolitan happened to get the upper hand. He pulled the blade and thrust it towards Decatur's chest. Decatur managed to grab his wrist. He reached for his pistol and shot the captain. As the captain lay there dying, Decatur rose from a pile of dead bodies, and the remaining crew surrendered the ship. This heroic feat wasn't celebrated long, and Decatur rushed to his brother. He stayed by his brother's side through the night, but James would eventually die from his wounds. His body was buried at sea. Despite overwhelming odds and intense fighting, James Decatur would be the only American life lost during the two-and-a-half-hour battle. Eleven other men were injured, five of which were Marines. The exact number of Tripolitans killed during the battle was unknown, but Decatur counted 52 dead and about twice as many wounded. Tripoli also lost six gunboats, but the city sustained very little damage. Preble did not forget the Marines, and in his report stated, The conduct of the officers, seamen, and Marines of the squadron merited the highest encomiums and behaved in the most gallant manner. He specifically called out Captain John Hall and 2nd Lieutenant Robert Greenleaf and the Marines belonging to their company. Marine Sergeant Mix and his four men were recognized for their superior performance against an enemy force three times their size. Marine Privates Michael Connor and Charles Young were promoted to sergeant for their acts of valor against the enemy off Tripoli and having sustained severe wounds. Even Congress thanked the Marines for their performance and awarded enlisted men one month's pay as a reward since they gloriously supported the honor of the American flag. This was a good day for the Americans, but the war was hardly over. Next time, we'll get into Preble's second attack on the Tripolitan Harbor, as well as the plan to dethrone Yusuf and give Tripoli its rightful heir. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll discuss another attack on the Tripolitan Fortress, as well as a battle to overthrow Yusuf. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines.
If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.